NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Tonight on The Readout. I didn't know practically what a subpoena was and grand juries and all of this. Now I'm like becoming an expert. I have no choice because we have to. It's a disgrace. It is a disgrace that a former president is so corrupt that he's facing the possibility of a third indictment. And tonight we're learning more about the potential charges outlined in the target letter Trump received from special counsel Jack Smith. Also tonight, Miles Taylor, who as a Trump administration official anonymously revealed the danger of Trump's abuses of power, is back with a new book and a new warning about the next Trump. He joins me tonight. I'm Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid, and we begin tonight with the walls of justice closing in on a twice impeached, twice indicted, liable for sexual abuse former president. Hours. Two and a half years after spearheading a months-long effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election, one that ended in a violent insurrection at the United States Capitol, Donald Trump is now almost certain to face criminal repercussions for his actions on and leading up to January 6, 2021. And new details suggest that this potential third indictment could be the most damning case against Trump yet. NBC News has learned that the target letter Trump received Sunday night from special counsel Jack Smith mentions three federal statutes, three conspiracy to defraud the United States, tampering with a witness and deprivation of rights under color of law. And while sources tell NBC that Trump has no plans to talk to the grand jury, that's not stopping the investigators from moving full steam ahead. Tomorrow, William Russell, Trump's former White House aide, who also currently works for his 2024 campaign, is set to testify before the grand jury investigating these efforts. While earlier today, Jack Smith was spotted at a D.C. federal courthouse. And look, while this is all coming to a head, the former president also received some bad news today about another one of the criminal cases that he's facing. A judge rejected his bid to move the Manhattan DA's hush money case to federal court. Meaning the trial will go on as scheduled in New York State. This is a lot. Joining me now to explain is Timothy Heafy, former lead investigator for the House Select January 6th Committee. Jill Weinbanks, former Watergate assistant, special prosecutor, MSNBC computer, and co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. And Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst. Um, Tim, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. So I'm just going to start with this. I had never, not being a lawyer, I hadn't really heard of this idea of a target letter, right? And it sounds at a practical level where it's just kind of like a legal version of a heads up, hey, we're coming for you. Um, you know, what, what's the significance of a target letter going to Trump's team? And the fact that he has mentioned it, does that mean that he's the only one who got one? Or could there be tons of people who've received these target letters? Yeah, so it's significant, Jason, in terms of what it says about where the special counsel is. I don't think, however, it will end up being a significant step in the investigation. It's fairly common for prosecutors before they make a final decision to to ask a grand jury to return an indictment to ask the target of that criminal investigation if he or she or it, if it's a company, has anything to add, anything to say to that might bear upon 
the grand jury's deliberations. And that seems like what's happened here. The special counsel has told the former president, you're a target of a grand jury investigation before the grand jury acts, makes a decision on a proposed indictment. Do you have anything to say? So that's significant. It suggests that an indictment is likely coming. We, we've been talking about that for weeks, months now. The select committee recommended that uh, the Justice Department evaluate criminal charges because the evidence would support one. But I don't think it's going to matter practically because it seems as if the former president will not accept that invitation and will not provide any additional information. Jill, this is the part that sort of seems curious to me. Look, if 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 feds come to my house, um, if, if if I get a target letter, look, if I get a phone call that just sounds too serious on my cell phone asking me if I'm happy with my cable bill, I'm going to show up wherever it is people are asking me to go. What is the significance uh, and potential legal hassles that Trump has made for himself by all but saying, look, I'm not going to show up and talk to any grand juries? Is there is it just a reflection of the fact that he's ignorant and does not care? Is it the fact that his lawyers have told him there's nothing to be gained from going to a grand jury because we think that you're going to incriminate yourself? What's the significance of that, especially after receiving a letter like this? You're right on your second guess. His lawyers have said, do not testify. You cannot help yourself. You will only hurt yourself. He's likely to commit perjury or to confess to more crimes. We've seen him do it time and time again. And he doesn't have to, and the grand jury cannot use his non-appearance as evidence against him, uh, nor can a uh, pettit jury, a trial jury, use it against him. So there's no harm to him in not testifying, and there sure is a lot of danger if he were to come in and lie to them. Lisa, I want to play you some sound from Trump at a town hall on another network with some other person last night and get your thoughts on the significance of what he's saying with these sort of impending charges. I got the letter on Sunday night. Think of it. I don't think they've ever sent a letter on Sunday night. And they're in a rush because they want to interfere. It's interference with the election. It's election interference. Never been done like this in the history of our country. And it's a disgrace. The DOJ has become a weapon for the Democrats, an absolute weapon. Lisa, one of the concerns that a lot of regular people have had out there is like, one, they, they felt that Merrick Garland took too long. They thought that the Department of Justice took too long because the idea was, hey, you want to bring these charges before Trump has announced he's going to run again. But there's sort of a counter argument that the guy wants to stay running for office as long as he can because he thinks it's his only way of staying out of legal trouble. What's the significance, if any, you know, is there any credibility of what Trump is saying? Is there any sort of way in which we can view this target letter or these ongoing investigations as having something to do with the impending election of 2024? No, I don't think so, Jason. I think really, first of all, nobody really knows what's going on at the Department of Justice and the special counsel's office other than the people in it. And most of the information that we're getting right now, I would venture to guess, is coming from defense counsel or counsel for witnesses in the investigation and not from the special counsel's office. So I'll say that first and foremost. But the idea that this is being driven by political concerns on behalf of the Biden administration is as offensive to the special counsel's office as it is to you or me and many of our viewers. And that's because the people who are working this investigation are either career prosecutors who have been loaned out to the special counsel's office 
judges who have no partisan affiliations at the DOJ. They're not political appointees. Or they're people that Jack Smith had worked with previously and asked to come and be his deputies as part of this investigation. I don't think the election is driving the timing here. But with one concern, which is that they believe the American people deserve to see Donald Trump have a trial before the election so that they can make an educated decision about whether or not to vote for him. And they've said that in open court. And that's interesting to me because I, I don't think there's anybody whose vote is going to be swayed one way or another uh, by impending prosecutions. But, but Tim, I, I want to read you this sort of tear. This is, this is from the, the New York Times. You know, the target letter to Trump raises the possibility of obstruction and fraud charges. Uh, any charges in the District of Columbia where federal grand juries have been hearing evidence would raise additional legal peril for Mr. Trump. Already, the Justice Department has won guilty pleas or convictions in hundreds of cases related to the riot, suggesting that a pool of jurors may be less receptive towards him than in Palm Beach County, Florida, where he faces charges over his hoarding of sensitive government documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate. I got to ask you, Tim, we're talking about the president of the United States. Unless you have been living under a rock, unless you have been paying no attention to what's happening in this country, I don't think you can find a jury anywhere in the United States that doesn't know about this and may not have an opinion. Is that something that the Trump team is going to try and use to his defense? Or is he just going to try to venue shop one way or another and see if he can always put these trials in red states or red parts of blue states so he can cover for himself? You see, neither side, Jason, can really form shop. Criminal cases are brought in the jurisdiction in which the acts that give rise to those criminal charges occur. The Mar-a-Lago documents case was brought in Florida because his allegedly unlawful possession of those documents occurred in Florida. The obstruction of an official proceeding, which I continue to believe will be the lead count of a Jan 6 indictment, occurred in Washington. So the president, the former president, or the Justice Department cannot really control which pool of jurors hears the case. I don't think the special counsel cares. They'd try this case in front of 12 people who get in a jury box because they believe if they bring an indictment that they have the evidence to convict, whether that is in Florida or in D.C. or anywhere. uh, They're not going to bring this case unless they are confident that they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So I think we spent a lot of time, lawyers spent a lot of time gaming out jury pools and where is or isn't favorable. In my experience, Jurors follow the instructions of the court, pay close attention to evidence, and generally follow those instructions and issue verdicts that are consistent uh, with the the facts and the law. That's going to happen wherever this case is brought. Jill, I got to ask you, because this is this is one part that's always been interesting to me as 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 an American citizen. It's always concerned me to a certain extent that juries have to be filled with people who don't have opinions on things that it frightens me that they don't have opinions on because it sort of suggests sometimes you haven't been paying attention. What do you think a jury selection process might be like in a place like Washington, D.C., where this terrorist attack and riot took place? I, I, I can imagine Trump's defense striking pretty much everybody because you'd be hard pressed, hard pressed to find anyone in Washington, D.C. who wasn't directly or indirectly affected by January 6th, even if it just meant I got to work late that day. How, how do you think that process is going to game out? I, I don't think it's going to matter. I agree with what Tim said about juries taking seriously their obligation. They listen to the evidence, they listen to the instructions, and the instructions say you have to decide based on the evidence in this courtroom. That led a Trump juror to convict Manafort or to vote to convict Manafort on all counts. And I think that will happen here too. 
The standard is not whether you have an opinion. The standard is whether you can set aside the opinion and vote based on only the evidence in the courtroom. It would be impossible to find anyone in this country who doesn't have an opinion, because if you did, you are right, Jason, you wouldn't want that person on the jury. They would have been living under a rock because there's no one who doesn't know what's going on here. So it's just a question of someone being honest in answering, saying, yes, I will vote on the evidence. Yes, I will set aside my opinion that I have formed before coming to this court. See, they should have given D.C. statehood. It might have helped them out. Um, Lisa, <laughs> I'll, I'll finish with this. This is, this is also something key. I think sometimes, again, as we talk about New York and we talk about the hidden documents, sometimes Georgia gets overlooked. There was a new story coming out now talking about how the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger's office, has been subpoenaed for 2020 election footage. Quote, the Georgia Secretary of State's office was directed to hand over any and all security video or security footage of any other video of any kind depicting or taken at near Atlanta State Farm Arena. This is huge. Um, you know, I've always been very critical of Raffensburg. I never thought he was a hero just because he wouldn't go along with Trump's plan. What's the significance of all this kind of video evidence being brought in? Do you think that could lead to uh, further prosecutions or is it just sort of additional evidence to back up investigations already going? It may be additional evidence to back up investigations already going, but the significance of the footage is definitely to disprove some of the claims that were being made about Georgia, that at the State Farm Arena, there was widespread fraud going on, including the trucking in of ballots in the middle of the night and right. the allegation that a— um, thumb drive was exchanged between two election poll workers that day, which never happened. Right. The idea, anyone who's ever been in Atlanta traffic knows you're not bringing a truck in there at any time of night. Uh, Timothy Heafy, thank you so much. Joe Winebanks and Lisa Rubin, thank you guys so much for starting us off today. Up next on The Readout, Trump reaches out to his allies in Congress for help with his mounting legal woes. As his fellow Republican candidates try to work up enough courage to call him out for his many misdeeds. The Readout with Jason Johnson continues right after this. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
It's no surprise that House Republicans are ten toes down for Trump. They spend the majority of their time defending Trump and ignoring issues like climate change, inflation, you know, issues that actually matter to everyday Americans. Today, NBC News confirmed reporting that the former president is colluding, and I do mean colluding, with House Republican leadership to use all of the tools at their disposal to defend him. Trump called Speaker McCarthy and Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik yesterday, urging them to work to rally support for him from their fellow Republican lawmakers. Yesterday, CNN reported that Stefanik discussed ways she could use her role in the House Weaponization Subcommittee to go after President Biden and cause political damage. When the former president moves, the GOP moves just like that. Here's an example. I have spoken with President Trump. I spoke with him yesterday. I speak with President Trump uh, on a weekly basis, give or take. And uh, this is yet another example of the illegal weaponization of the Department of Justice to go after Joe Biden's top political opponent. Can the House of Representatives do anything about that? Every time President Trump goes up in the polls, they come after him. This is one of the fundamental reasons why when we took the majority, we created the Weaponization Committee. He has his targets set on President Trump, and it's all to basically change the 2024 election. Do you think it's election interference? I do. I absolutely do. Joining me now is Charles Blow, columnist for the New York Times and MSNBC political analyst, and Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. Charlie, I'll start with you. Look, I'm not surprised. Republicans are going to support Donald Trump. They've always supported Donald Trump. That's not anything new one way or another. But the polling isn't really bearing this out right now, right? Like, Marjorie Taylor Greene is not going to be a VP pick. Um, You know, McCarthy, we know he's kind of spineless one way or another. But I'm wondering at this point if Trump is going to go to Washington and try and beg people to come out and support him. You know, what does that support really entail? There's not that much that Congress can actually do. And if I am a Republican in perhaps a wavering district, I don't want to be anywhere near this. So, so what's the game plan here? Well, the game plan is to delegitimize uh, the entire criminal justice system. Uh, and what we're seeing here, again, I agree with you, it's, it is not surprising, but it's also extraordinary how much uh, Donald Trump has moved the Overton window. So the Republicans have gone from uh, saying, well, this was just locker room talk back in 2016, to now making obstruction of justice a centerpiece of their legislative agenda. Because the question is, what can the House of Representatives do? What are they going to try to defund uh, this? Are are they actually going to try to uh, obstruct this? But the larger picture here, Jason, and I think people need to understand um, the success that Donald Trump has had, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in delegitimizing almost all the institutions in American society that can hold him accountable. He's attacked. He's, he's attacked the FBI. He's attacked the Department of Justice. He's attacked uh, the news media. Uh, he has threatened to dismantle the intelligence agencies. He has not hesitated to attack prosecutors or to demean uh, judges. In fact, even using their, their ethnic identity against them. And we're, we're coming to a period now, criminal justice system may be the final bulwark to protect constitutional democracy. It may come down to the judges and the court system. So what you're seeing is Donald Trump and his allies in Congress doing everything they can to delegitimize this final guardrail uh, to protect uh, to protect American uh, d- democracy, and I think it's extraordinary, uh, even given the long history of Republican acquiescence, that the fact that they're willing to go along with this 
before we even know what these indictments right. are. So people need to understand the strategy here to delegitimize the courts, delegitimize the criminal justice system, and use that uh, basically to get Donald Trump off the hook or to justify um, his, his future retribution. See what you did there by throwing the bulwark in. It's very good, Charlie. You're very good at this. Um, <laughs> I, I got to play some sound here. This is the thing. There are other people who are actually running for office, Charles. There are other Republicans who are pretending that they're not just going to be chum to the sort of Trump shark campaign. I want to play you some sound from that and get your thoughts on the other side. I'm not convinced that uh, the president acting on the bad advice of of a group of crank lawyers uh, that came into the White House in the days before January 6th is actually criminal. And secondly, the, the truth is that the Department of Justice has lost the confidence of the American people. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. We've gone down the road in this country of trying to criminalize uh, differences in politics. They are hunting Republicans, and that is weaponizing the DOJ. Now, Charles, I usually ignore anything that former Vice President Renfield says, you know, given his whole life is just chasing after, you know, the Dracula Trump campaign. That's fine. Right. But but Tim Scott, who at least can pretend that he's running for office and, and Ron DeSantis, who is, you know, first first place loser when it comes to Trump, they have incentive to at least say, hey, we can let this process move through. What do you think their internal logic is? and saying that they don't want to see Trump prosecuted? Because it doesn't make any sense to me from a campaign strategy standpoint. Well, they are running for president in a party that belongs to the person they're running against, right? Donald Trump is in the bloodstream of the modern Republican Party. They are trying to win votes away from the person who gave birth to them. So it is a very, very difficult situation and it, in many ways impossible to do. Either you have to take him on frontally and assume that you can peel people away, that you can break the spell that Donald Trump has cast over them, uh, and none of them seem to believe that they can do that, or they have to sit and wait for enough evidence to pile up against Donald Trump that people begin to fall away on their own and they are there to catch them. None of this makes political sense outside of Trump world, but inside of Trump world is already a crazy world. It is it is not bound by the regular rules of politics or of logic. And I believe that it is destined to fail because of it. And, and by the way, anybody who thinks that they're running for vice president, like a Republican presidential nominee hasn't done that in like 30 years. That's a, that's a crazy plan if anyone thinks that that's what they're doing. Uh, Charlie, I want to switch to another member of the party who is both embarrassing themselves with their hypocrisy and not following through with their campaign promises. We have new information here about Senator Tommy Tuberville. You know, he has been blocking major important national security nominations that are leaving our country weaker. But on top of that, because he's been doing that for weeks because he claims that our military is too woke, we've now found out that Tuberville pledged to donate every dime of his salary to veterans, and he hasn't given them a darn thing. I know it's not going to affect him in his state. I know he's not going to lose his job. But do Republicans heading into a critical year of 2024, does the leadership, does McConnell say, hey, look, you need to back off of this because these are the kinds of things that Republicans are going to get bludgeoned with in 2024 if we look like obstructionists instead of actually getting things done. 
Yes, that would happen in a rational political party. Look, Tommy Tuber, there's a lot of competition here for the dumbest member of the U.S. Senate, but Tommy Tuberville certainly, um, you know, has the poll position right now. But he he does, he is an embarrassment to the Republican Party, particularly a Republican Party that claims to care about the military, claims to care about national defense. And as a result of his demagoguery on all of this, the Marine Corps, for the first time in its history, does not have a commanding general. Um, why is that happening? Why are his fellow senators allowing that to happen? Why is Mitch McConnell allowing that to happen? Why is Chuck Schumer allowing that to happen? It's one thing to have somebody who is as deplorable and dumb as Tommy Tuberville. But then the question is, why does the, the you know, the, the, the world's greatest deliberative body allow him to have that that kind of, of clout? And why are Republicans going to go into 2024 with him being basically, you know, holding the whip hand on, on fundamental issues of national security? It's crazy. But again, as, as, Char as Charles pointed out, we're dealing in a crazy world. And we have to understand that we are not dealing in a world where rational decisions always dominate. And, and, and this is something we need to come back to again and again. And I keep pointing out, we're not dealing with a party anymore. We're dealing with a basically a, a dime storefront for a terrorist organization. Uh, I want to mention this real quick to you, Charles, and get your thoughts. Marjorie Taylor Greene is out there, you know, basically saying we should defend Donald Trump, but go after Hunter Biden. I'm going to play you some quick sound, get your thoughts when we come back. I would also like to say that when evidence and proof of a crime is presented, no prosecution should be denied, no matter who the person is. I'm not surprised she's a hypocrite, but still beating this Hunter Biden drum 15 minutes before heading to the 2044 election. Charles, does that work for anybody anymore outside of people who are already in the sort of MAGA cult? Listen, the Hunter Biden thing is dead. Uh, maybe it has some traction among the far right, but it just didn't catch on the way that they thought that it would. And, 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 and every time they get close to feeling like they have something, it falls apart. It's not going to be the issue. So they can keep harping on that. They can keep trying to put, you know, Hunter up uh, uh, in the same basket as Donald Trump. It doesn't work. Even among Republicans, I don't think that this works. They have to switch gears. But the problem is, it is impossible to de to truly defend Donald Trump about what we know already. And we don't even know what's in the right, new right. possible indictment coming over the January 6th and the, and the stealing of the election. Because there's still, uh, still tons coming. Uh, Charles Blow and Charlie Sucks are running up against a break. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Still ahead, Trump makes plans to move America from a democracy to a dictatorship, even as he's facing legal blowback for January 6th. Miles Taylor, who served in the Trump administration, joins me next to talk about that and his new book, Blowback. We'll be right back. This is Jason Johnson sitting in on The Readout. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen. I am your walrus, cuckoo-cuchu. Earlier this year, before the indictments against him started to flow like water, Donald Trump made his intentions clear, openly talking about leveraging the power of a future presidency for political reprisals. Now he is facing a potential third indictment, with even more possibly waiting in the wings, all while trying to make the case to the American voters that he should be trusted to sit behind the resolute desk for a second term. And we are already learning of the plans being prepared if somehow, some way, Trump is able to win in 2024. The New York Times is reporting on the ways Trump and his allies are planning to expand presidential power and remove the guardrails that kept him at least partially in check. The warnings about a second Trump presidency are also laid out in a new book by former Trump administration official and author of the famous 2018 anonymous New York Times op-ed criticizing Trump, Miles Taylor. The book is Blowback, a warning to save democracy from the next Trump. And Miles Taylor joins me now. Miles, great to talk to you. Look, not everybody does this, but I can literally put up your book and show all the places that I have highlighted. This is this is legitimately a really interesting read, very compelling um, and moving because it's not just you talking about the dangers of Trump. But the part that I want you to start with is the amount of risk that people who are standing against Trump and want to be those guardrails, whether it's you or, or, or Liz Cheney, talk about the sort of physical danger uh, that people are facing by talking about how dangerous a future Trump or a second Trump presidency could be. Well, Jason, uh, in a sense, uh, I'm a cautionary tale. And, you know, I try to get really, really personal in this book about those consequences, not because I'm looking for sympathy. You and I have talked about this before. I don't need the sympathy, but people need to see inside of the reality of what dissent looks like in this country. I mean, I'm someone who still has restraining orders against stalkers, someone who still continues to get death threats. We had to move my family. We had to live in safe safe houses. I mean, on election night 2020, I spent election night under armed guard in a safe house in Northern Virginia with a pistol under my pillow because of the death threats. This is not what free speech should look like in the United States. That sounds like what happens in third world autocracies. And you opened this segment by saying Trump is laying out the playbook for how to turn the United States into a centrally run uh, dictatorship. That sounds like crazy rhetoric, but it's the reality we're living in. And he's spelling it out in excruciating detail. And I've got to say, the reporting you mentioned from The Times, Maggie Haberman and Jonathan Swan did an outstanding job, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And that's why I wrote Blowback, is to go into deep detail about exactly how they want to weaponize the federal government department by department to exact revenge against their rivals. And don't hear it from me, because the people quoted in this book are the people around Donald Trump, his former top lieutenants and senior Republicans in Congress and who've recently left Congress. 
you know, it's no surprise to anyone watching, anyone reads anything that I do, listens to my podcast. I have been highly critical of the current administration for not being aggressive enough and not only prosecuting the people who are engaged in the ongoing coup, but also for not strengthening the guardrails that this country needs to have to protect us against either Trump coming back or another version of Donald Trump. Talk a little bit about, because you mentioned this in the book, like our, our, our only safety valve here is our guardrails. What do you think the current administration is doing? Did you, know, did you write this book because you don't think that the Biden administration is doing enough? Or do you see some signs that they're taking some of the concerns that you're laying out in this book seriously? Well, I wrote the book in part, Jason, because I'm sick of all these Trump retrospectives of people trying to burnish their credentials and rewrite their story. We don't need another Trump memoir on the bookshelves. And no offense to my former colleagues who've gone and written Trump retrospectives. What I wanted to see is someone to tell us what Trump wanted to do in a first term, what he was stopped from doing, and what he would do if given a chance to go back into public office, and what the, and what the MAGA movement would do if it was a copycat. So this is a forecast, uh, and unfortunately, a, a very chilling forecast about what could happen if we make the civic mistake of giving like right. uh, someone like that a second opportunity. Now, as, as for the guardrails that you mentioned, unfortunately, we all hoped that the people around Donald Trump would keep him from doing bad things. But we learned that even well-meaning bureaucrats could not keep a wayward chief executive in check. So the right. executive branch guard rails were broken. Congress failed to hold Donald Trump accountable in those two impeachments. Now we're hoping that the judiciary does something. But as you've noted well, Donald Trump is still surging in the polls. He's likely to be the GOP nominee despite, despite being twice indicted. So I don't think we can count on the three branches of government. It's going to be up to the voters to prevent our democracy from falling off a knife's edge. I got to point this out. Uh, you know, you sort of list the potential Trump cabinet based on conversations that you had with former members. These are the kinds of people that he wants to put into office. You've got Pam Bondi, Michael Flynn. I, I mean, I read through this list and it, it reminded me of that scene in Blazing Saddles where they're trying to put together the gang and they've got they got Nazis, they got Klan members. I, I was waiting to see like Gargamel and Sauron on this list. I mean, it's just it's just a rogues gallery of maniacs and freaks who would destroy our government. When people were mentioning these things to you, when they were saying, look, our new administration could look like an absolute clown car, were they saying it because they were like, I, I do believe this is going to happen or because this is our best case scenario because it could actually be worse? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, the, the people that I interviewed for this book, my former colleagues and Trump cabinet secretaries, described this as, quote, a nightmare slate. I mean, the fact that Trump's own lieutenants would say if given a second go around, he would bring in a nightmare slate of public officials. It's not you saying it, Jason, and it's not TV commentators. It's Trump's own people. That should really worry you. If you thought a first Trump administration was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet because the people who were willing to stand up to Donald Trump and the MAGA movement who would try to say no to illegal and unethical and unconstitutional ideas will not be back for a second go around. It will be the enablers. And look, I'm not saying that those of us who went in to try to keep the guardrails wrong did everything right. In fact, I have enormous regrets about how that was handled. We were naive and thinking we could keep him in check. But that's the message right. I want to send is do not count on good people going in in a second go around. It will be the enablers. It this. will be people. 
who want to execute his vision. Miles Taylor, author of Blowback. Guys, this is a legitimately good book. You should check it out. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Thanks, Jason. The lead plaintiff in a lawsuit challenging Texas's new abortion ban joins me to tell us about how it almost cost her her life. We're back right after this. It's Jason Johnson sitting in on The Readout. Almost immediately after the Supreme Court ended the constitutional right to abortion, the stories of women suffering from medical complications began pouring in. That's why a group of Texas women took legal action against their state, saying they were denied abortions despite grave risks to their lives or their fetuses. Today, those plaintiffs shared what happened to them, giving testimony about the catastrophic harms of post-Roe America. I don't feel safe to have children in Texas anymore. I know that um, it was very clear that my health didn't really matter. Completely devastated. I had just been given the worst news of my life. She said, unfortunately, miscarriage was inevitable. And so we were with complete certainty going to lose our daughter. She couldn't intervene because the baby's heart was still beating. Um, and so inducing labor would have been considered an illegal abortion. Joining me now is the person you just heard, Amanda Zarowski, lead plaintiff in the Texan abortion, Texas abortion ban lawsuit, and Molly Duane, senior staff attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights, who is arguing on behalf of the plaintiffs. Uh, Molly, I'll start with you just very quickly. You're not seeking to overturn the Texas law. What you're seeking is clarity because it was written in scribble and nonsense and doctors don't know what to do. What would clarity look like um, if you all are successful in your suit? I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, this, this exception that purportedly exists under the state's abortion ban does not function in practice. And those who are opposed to abortion often like to tout these exceptions as the reason why the laws are okay. But they're a farce. And Amanda's experience shows that that is true. So what we're seeking in this case is truly the bare minimum that pregnant Texans are entitled to under the law to protect their lives and their health. And what we're asking for is really very simple. Just like in every other part of medical practice, physicians should be able to use their discretion in consultation with their patients to determine when an abortion is medically necessary to save a patient's life, their health, or their fertility. Amanda, I don't think your story can be shared enough. Just Share again with our audience what happened to you and what drove you to being a lead plaintiff in this absolutely essential case. Sure. Um, thank you for having me and for covering this story. So um, I had undergone about a year and a half of fertility treatment and finally became pregnant last May. Um, and just shy of 18 weeks of pregnancy, I was diagnosed with a condition called cervical insufficiency or incompetent cervix. Um, basically, that means I was dilating prematurely. Um, we were told that we were inevitably going to lose the baby, um, but that there was no health care or intervention that the doctors could provide um, because of the laws that had just gone into effect. And so um, 
I had to wait essentially until I got sick enough that my life was considered in danger. And at that point, my physicians were allowed to intervene, but I um, actually went into septic shock and was admitted to the hospital, um, the ICU for three days, and then an additional three days after that. Amanda, what's so disturbing about what you're sharing is obviously your story is not unique. You have people having these experiences all throughout the state of Texas. When you've had opportunities to speak with elected officials, what are their responses, especially the, the, the men and women who supported these kinds of draconian laws? Do they, just, do they just throw up your hands? Do they offer you thoughts and prayers? What's the response when you explain that your life was endangered because you couldn't get access to a type of health care that had been available to everybody for most of our lifetimes? So I've I've had the opportunity to testify um, in in a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing, and they actually ignored me. They didn't didn't address me. They didn't listen to me. They didn't ask me any questions. They just um, ignored me and pretend like pretended like I wasn't there. And I think that's their goal is because they want to silence me and they want to silence all of the other pregnant people that this has happened to or might happen to. Um, you know, I think they want to pretend that this isn't actually a problem. And that's why we continue to speak out because it is, and it's happening all over the country and it's getting worse the longer this goes on, but they refuse to believe it. And so they just try to ignore us. And and one other thing, because I, I think this is also key, the kind of activism that you're engaging in, it has its own dangers, right? You, you, you have political consequences. There are sometimes death threats and things like that. What kinds of, of, of blowback have you faced um, since taking a role in activism to try to restore these rights? I mean, have there been sort of economic consequences? Have you had to get security protection? Because in many of these states, they have tried to make women who are seeking this kind of medical care criminals in sort of a symbolic way. Fortunately for me, um, the outreach and the um, response has been quite positive and quite supportive. And I think that's indicative of the fact that most Americans don't agree with complete and total abortion bans. Um, I haven't had um, any security you know, issues that you mentioned, but certainly psychologically, this has taken an immense toll on me personally. Um, but again, most people are incredibly supportive because most people believe in this cause and don't think that these restrictive bans should be in place. This is another example of politics superseding not only science, but basic human rights. Amanda Zarowski and Molly Duane, thank you for the work that you're doing for women in the state of Texas and throughout this country. And thanks for joining us on The Readout tonight. We'll be back right after this. Excuse my country grammar, but it's getting hot in here. Hundreds of millions of people around the world are dealing with unprecedented heat with records being shattered around the globe as our climate crisis continues to worsen. Earlier this week, part of the Persian Gulf hit a heat index of 152 degrees Fahrenheit, a level intolerable for human life. China hit records of over 126 degrees Fahrenheit, and much of Europe is facing a heat advisory as wildfires rage in Greece. The U.S. is breaking records as well, with extreme heat affecting 77 million people. NBC's Aaron McLaughlin has the latest. 
I'm Erin McLaughlin. The deadly heat dome creating chaos at Harry Reid International in Las Vegas. Several passengers and a flight attendant exiting a Delta flight by stretcher after being stuck on the tarmac in unrelenting triple-digit heat for hours. They were sh- visibly shaking, like shaking. The Robinson family was on the flight with their one-year-old baby when they saw fellow passengers become ill. It looked like their cognitive skills were in decline eyes rolling in the back of the head. And doctors say that's the sign of potentially deadly danger. When you're confused, um, we know that you have a heat stroke. Delta has apologized for the incident and says it's investigating the matter. This is the Valley of the Sun breaks yet another all-time record with an overnight low of 97 degrees, the hottest it's ever been when the sun's down. Phoenix going on three weeks of temps 110 plus. Experts say the city's sprawling concrete is partly to blame as it stops urban areas from cooling down. Tonight across the country, 77 million people are under heat alerts. And it's not just humans who are suffering. At the Phoenix Zoo, it's all hands on deck to make sure the animals are comfortable and cool. They're not quite used to these temperatures and we're constantly monitoring them. Tonight, it's the dog days of summer with no end in sight. Aaron McLaughlin, NBC News, Phoenix. You've got zoo animals from the desert that are too hot. NBC's Aaron McLaughlin, thank you so much. That is tonight's readout. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.